I'm happy to be here with you. I'm grateful for the invitation from Father Stewart and the staff here at the Church of St. Mary for Sharon's invitation, especially as we start this, this really holy season of Lent. It's strangely, you might think uh, I'm a little odd in this, but Lent is one of my favorite seasons in the church year. I know it's a little dark and a little penitential, but I think there's so much that the season offers us in reflecting upon the reality of our world, on our lives, etc. I, uh, I thought I would begin with just a very, very brief a bit on where I'm coming from, my background and the order to which I belong. And you'll see that this stuff will percolate through uh, my presentation this evening. I grew up in Tennessee. My mom's family was very devout Catholic. They were Polish from up north. My father's family were Church of Christ, fundamentalist from down south, and uh, very strict. When I was a kid, we would go and spend the summer with my grandparents, my father's parents, and loved it. They had a, they had a farm in, in Lawrence County, Tennessee, um, and we would go to church with them in the summer, even though there was a tiny little Catholic church in Lawrenceburg in the city about 20 miles away, 25 miles away. Um, but my grandparents would never have gone to a stepped into a Catholic church. So we went with them. And of course, we had to wear long pants in the summer in Tennessee. Um, they, uh, they had no like instrumental music. It was all a cappella, beautiful, beautiful singing and very traditional. Um, what I think of as a traditional Protestant, Protestant background. But I remember distinctly one time coming into church on a Sunday at the Etheridge Church of Christ, and I genuflected before I went into the pew. Mm. And uh, my uh, grandmother was horrified. And uh, I think she, uh, I think I embarrassed her, is what it was. Little Catholic boy coming to mass, or going, coming to church, uh, and genuflecting in front of all her friends in the community there. Uh, I was very fortunate to go to Villanova University for my undergrad, first one in my family, to be able to go to college. And it was at Villanova that I met the Augustinians. The uh, Augustinians run Villanova. And so it was while I was there that I kind of discerned my vocation. And after I graduated from Villanova, I entered the novitiate of our order, uh, professed vows, and continued with the process. I was ordained to the priesthood in 1997 and have been stationed kind of all over the Midwest and a little bit in the East during my life as a religious. Our order, we're a, we're a medieval order. We were founded in 1244. We were founded actually by the Pope. We were not actually founded by St. Augustine, who died many, many centuries before we came along. 
But he, the Pope at the time, Innocent IV, formed us uh, to follow the rule of Augustine. And we kind of adopted him as our spiritual father, our spiritual guide. So a lot of what I will be sharing with you over the next couple of days kind of comes from my reading of Augustine. And I'd like to start us out this evening with a reading from his most famous work, The Confessions. And he wrote this just after he became bishop in a small town, Hippo Regius, in North Africa. Um, he wrote this book called The Confessions, and he goes back over his entire life, and he traces how God was at work in his life from his childhood all the way up to and after his conversion to Catholicism as a young man. It's a wonderful, wonderful record of one person's experience of the Christian journey, of the Christian life. But it opens the very beginning of the Confessions. Great are you, O Lord, and exceedingly worthy of praise. Your power is immense and your wisdom beyond understanding. And so we humans long to praise you. We who carry our mortality within us, we who carry the evidence of our sin and with it the proof that you thwart the proud. Yet we as humans, part of your creation, we still long to praise you. For you stir us, you incite us, so that praising you may bring us joy, because you have made us and drawn us to yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Amen. Do you mind if I set this here? Is that okay? I have my cheat sheet with me, so. That line of Augustine is one of his most famous, and I think one of the reasons it appeals to us is that it describes a kind of fundamental reality about who we are as human beings. That, first of all, we are created by God. He made us and we belong to him. And we're on this journey, we're on this path that leads back to him. We are restless until we find our rest in him. And Augustine kind of felt that there was a kind of homing device that was placed inside each one of us that kind of pulls us throughout our lives, sometimes along a very windy path, until ultimately, by his grace, we find our way back to him, that we come to communion with him, an intimacy with him, an intimacy that he wants with us. 
And there's a, there's a funny quote, G.K. Chesterton, the famous uh, author and friend of Tolkien. And he one time said that the man who is knocking on the door of the brothel is ultimately seeking Almighty God. That there's an emptiness that exists in all of us. There's a hole inside of us, kind of by God's design, that moves us, that impels us throughout our lives to search for meaning, to find that purpose for our lives, to seek fulfillment, intimacy, love, true happiness. And of course, all of those things, ultimately, we find in Almighty God, God who is the Alpha and the Omega of our faith. And what I'd like to start with, <laughs> Yes, I'm a little old school, okay? I have a, <laughs> a whiteboard and a marker. And I'm not ashamed. <laughs> but I'd like to start with a series of little vignettes that, uh, when put together, kind of give us a bigger picture. And, of course, I'd like to start with the scriptures a good starting place. And so we have, yeah, now, I have a little bit of nervous energy right now since I'm new to St. Mary. And so my artistic ability is going to be rather limited. There's St. Paul on his horse. And he's on the road to Damascus. So this is what, Palestine, first century. And of course, we know the story, right? He's on the road, he's an agent of the Jewish faith, and he's on his way to obliterate these Christian troublemakers. And while he's on the road, he's blinded. He has some kind of experience. And it throws him from the horse, it knocks him to the ground, and he's, he's bewildered, he's kind of out of it, and in the midst of that turmoil, that confusion, he hears a voice. And of course, it's the voice of God. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And it doesn't make any sense. Why are you persecuting me? But that experience is so huge that it changes his life completely. And when he arrives at his destination, he's not quite so aggressive or belligerent. In fact, he's rather docile and open to this new group called the Christians. And of course, he will become a Christian one of the most zealous Christians. Perhaps some people say kind of the second founder of our faith as Christians. 
We fast forward a couple of centuries and we come back to Augustine and here he is at his table in the garden. This is kind of like modern art. It's a little uh, <laughs> pointillist maybe or something. But there he is, Augustine. He's sitting in his garden. And of course, we're in the city of Milan and we're in the year 387. And you may be familiar with this story. He's in his garden. Now he's reached the pinnacle of his career. He came from a dinky little town like Idabel, Oklahoma or something like that. No offense to anyone from Idabel, but he, he comes from a dinky little town on the edge of the Roman Empire. And of course, he has great ambitions and his father gives him an excellent education at, at some cost to himself. Augustine pursues that education and he leaves behind his family. He heads off to Rome, to the center of the empire. He's ambitious. He's got dreams. He's going places and he finds himself by a strange um, gathering of, of opportunities, he finds himself as the PR person in the court of the Roman emperor. This small town guy who now finds himself as the spokesperson for the most powerful ruler in the world, the Roman emperor. At that time, the seat of the Roman emperor was in Milan. Rome was still the cultural capital, but Milan was the political capital. So he's there. He's got everything he ever wanted. He thinks he's financially extremely stable. He, he has lots of money. He's living with some woman that he picked up along the way. Um, he's not married to, uh, he, uh, has this incredible career and he's unhappy. And he's wondering whether this is all there is. So he's sitting in the garden of the villa in the city of Milan, and he's thinking about all these things. Now he's been going to church, not to pray. He's been going to church because the Bishop of Milan, St. Ambrose was renowned for his speaking abilities. And Augustine wanted that. But while he's sitting there in church Sunday after Sunday, the message kind of slips in. So he's hearing the gospel and living his life. And he's seeing that there's, there's a great disconnect. So he's in the garden. He's thinking about all these things. He's kind of upset and he hears these words being chanted. And he thinks it's a children's game outside the garden in the street. And they're saying, pick up and read, pick up and read. Tole legge, tole legge in Latin. And he looks around and of course, there's a Bible there in the garden and he picks it up, he opens it. And the first thing he reads from the letter to the Romans, going back to St. Paul, not in drunkenness, not in sexual excess, not in orgies, not in all those things, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and 
And Augustine takes that as spoken directly to him. And it changes his life. He'll quit his job. He'll dump the woman that he's been living with. And he'll begin a quest to discover Jesus Christ. And he details this quest in the confessions. Let's fast forward. to the year 11, to, to the year 1205. We're in San Damiano, Italy. And here's the kind of the ruins of a church. I can draw ruins very well. <laughs> there, we'll put a little cross at the top. And here is uh, St. Francis. And now, of course, St. Francis, you may be familiar with this story. St. Francis grew up very wealthy. He went off to serve in the wars because he was a young man, and that's what young men did. When he got back from the wars, he was kind of aimless, living off of his father, a little bit of a playboy, no responsibility, no cares in the world, living life. And he stopped one day beside the ruins of this old church, and he kind of sat down. Earlier that day, he had bumped into a beggar on the side of the road. And it kind of got him thinking a little bit, because here he was with everything, and this beggar had nothing. So he stops, and there's the ruins of this church, and again, he has some kind of experience. And he hears a voice. A voice that tells him to rebuild my church. And at first, Francis takes it literally. He's looking at these ruins. I have to rebuild this church. But in actuality, we know that it was a, it was a call to reform the church. And he would establish the Franciscans, embrace a life of poverty, become one of our most famous saints as Catholics and beloved saints in, in uh, our Catholic tradition. St. Francis, you notice he doesn't give as much time as St. Augustine. <laughs> I'll let you think about that. <laughs> uh, we're going to fast forward to 1926, and we're going to New York City here in the U.S. of A. And this time, we have Dorothy Day. If you're familiar with her story, she had had a kind of colorful life. She was not raised in any particular tradition. She had been through multiple relationships in her young life. She was a bit of an activist. She kind of flirted with the anarchists. She had many friends who were communists. She herself was a professed socialist, um, kind, of a, kind of a rebel. Um, 
She had had an abortion, a child that she did not want, and she um, aborted that child. And yet, she was working in the Italian-American community in New York City as a kind of social worker. And she was very impressed with how close-knit this community was of Italian immigrants. They took care of each other. When someone got sick, they all rallied. When someone was fired, they all pooled their resources to help them out. Very, very close-knit. And of course, at the center of their community was the church. Good Catholics. And she was kind of bewildered by this. This was kind of a new experience for her. A new sense of community whose heart is faith. Something very alien to her past, to her reality. And she tells the story that she saw a nun walking down the street. I'm not going to try and draw, draw a nun. But she, was, she saw a nun walking down the street, and she approached the nun and started to ask questions about the Catholic faith. And the nun yelled at her because <laughs> she didn't know her catechism. Um, but she was not to be dissuaded. And she started a relationship learning from this nun that led to her conversion to the Catholic faith. And she became very, very, very devout. And all of her work, she started the Catholic worker movement, all of her work was rooted in the Eucharist, daily celebration of the Mass, and in her growing Catholic faith. One more. This is now. And this is Tulsa. And this is the campus at TU. <laughs> so I'll put like an academic building or something like that. And just a couple of months ago, I was talking with a teacher in our Catholic schools, and she told the story that when she was a college student at TU, she was, and I have her permission to share this, she was walking on campus in the middle of the day, and the doors to Sharp Chapel were open. And there was music, organ music, coming out of the chapel. And on a whim, just out of the blue, she decided to go inside. And because the doors were open, she went in, and there was no one there. There was just the, the person practicing the organ. And she sat down in a pew, and she began to think about her life and some of the challenges that she was facing at that point in her life. And she looked up, and apparently there's a stained glass window there of Christ our light. And that image pierced her heart. And at that moment, she started out on a journey 
toward faith, a faith that she did not have prior to that in her life. All of these form, and there are, there are zillions up more, probably many, even in our gathering here this evening. All of these give a kind of evidence. They form a record of God's intrusion into our world. For the truth of the matter is, is that God wants to be part of our lives. God wants to be part of our world. And God is continually reaching out to us over and over and over again, no matter where we are, no matter what time period it is or what culture we come from. God is constantly speaking to us inviting us into a deeper communion with himself every day and every moment God calls out to us. And of course, we see this as part of the great mystery of the incarnation, right? That God became human. God wanted to be so close to us that he became one of us. Years ago, when I was a, when I was a young priest, um, I, I was stationed, I only spent about a year and a half in a parish in my entire life. Most of my life has been in education. Um, I spent about a year and a half in a parish up in Wisconsin, in Kenosha, and I was ordained there and spent my first year as a brand new baby priest up there in Kenosha. And I knew absolutely nothing, nothing. Came out of all those years of seminary, all the theology, and knew nothing. And I got there, and thankfully, thankfully, it was a wonderful community, and they taught me. And I had a wonderful Augustinian community who taught me, and I learned. But I remember distinctly, it was like the second weekend I was there, and I was giving out communion. And people, and this, uh, the parish up there was kind of like a working class parish. And people were coming to communion and they would, they would extend their hands and their hands would be filthy. And the little kids would come in and they'd extend their hands and their hands were filthy. And I was like, they're receiving the body of Christ, don't they know? But I learned... I learned, and there was something beautiful about that. Something that speaks to us about the mystery of the incarnation. That God desired to enter our world, to become human, to enter into the messiness of our lives, the messiness of our society, to experience everything that we experience. And so when they extend their hands and they're dirty, good. Jesus still wants to be a part of their lives. 
Jesus still wants to be part of our world. That mystery of the incarnation, we see it over and over and over again, where God reaches out into our world. God speaks to us. He bridges the gap between ourselves and him. There's a statue in the church of St. Augustine in Rome. It's our, it's our mother house as Augustinians. It's a, it's a beautiful, kind of a Baroque church, um, right off of the Piazza Navona, just a little, just around the corner from the Piazza Navona. And there's a statue in there by San Savino. And it's of the Blessed Mother, and she's holding the child Jesus, and St. Anne, her mom, is right next to her. And St. Anne is tickling the foot of the child Jesus. And Jesus is kind of squirming on the lap of the Blessed Mother. And St. Anne's face is one of, and it's, you know, she's older, one of pure delight. A grandmother with her grandchild. Very, very human. Very, very beautiful. That reveals something to us of the mystery and the beauty of God and God's love for us and for our world. Most of these stories are stories of significant change. And most of them are from people who do not believe and they come to belief. Much more common and much more frequent, I think, in our lives and certainly in the life of our church is God's voice reaching out to people who are already on the path, people who are already believers. It doesn't matter. God still calls us. God still wants to unite with us. And his voice changes us, maybe not dramatically, but changes us nonetheless. And some of us, of course, have been walking the Christian path for years, since we were little kids. Some of us are much more recently come to belief and to walking the path. And some of us, our path has been crazy. At times we feel like we're making progress and we're feeling good, feeling close to Almighty God and we love him. And at other times we feel far from God and we feel like we're separated from him. And we wonder where he is. And yet God still speaks to us. God still calls us. Um, I'm going to add, where's my marker? This is St. Vincent de Paul. And the year is 1612 in Paris. And here's uh, Vincent de Paul in his 
Pasek. There he is. And he's very, very tired. Uh, St. Vincent de Paul came from poverty. His parents were very poor, but he was smart. And as has been customary, he joined the priesthood because it was an avenue out of poverty. He'd get an excellent education by the church. He'd get the prestige of being a priest in the church in the 17th century. Big deal in a very, very Catholic culture. And because he was very talented, he rose and he was like a secretary to the bishop in 1612. He dressed in the finest cassock, cuffs, big collar. He'd made it in life. He was walking the path. He was trying to be a good priest, even though his motivation may not have been perfect. And he was coming home late one night after a hard day's work. And just as he got within sight of where he lived, he saw a beggar at the front door. He was tired, he was worn out, and he was not happy to see this beggar. And he was thinking to himself, well, I'll just, I'll just throw some money at him and go on inside. Well, when he got close, of course, the beggar kind of perked up. But the beggar, instead of asking for money, he wanted to go to confession. And that caught Vincent de Paul by surprise. And it kind of shook him. Because he had just assumed that this guy, because he was lying in the street, wanted money. He didn't want any of that. He just wanted to go to confession. And that touched Vincent's heart. And it changed him. And he could pinpoint that his life of faith took a turn in that encounter with the beggar on the street late that night. And suddenly he took it seriously. And as we know, would end up giving much of his life in service of the poor. Fast forward again, 1946. This is on a train in India. And this little black dot here in the window is Mother Teresa. In 1946, she, uh, you know, she's from Albania. And uh, she joined an Irish mis missionary group of sisters in Albania, and they sent her to India. And she worked for the first few years at a very, very wealthy girls' school in India. Well, one day she was sitting in the train heading up to uh, another house of the order, the Sisters of Laredo. And as she was sitting on that train, she had some kind of experience, a kind of new awareness. And when she got off that train, 
she decided to leave the wealthy girls' school and dedicate her life to serving the poorest of the poor. And eventually, we know, she would start her own religious order, the Missionaries of Charity. And she would give herself completely to serving the poor, Mother Teresa. And lastly, this one's kind of an odd one. We're looking at 2007. We're looking at London. And this guy, Tony Blair, former prime minister of England. In 2006, 2007, he ended his term as prime minister and he stepped down. Almost immediately, he converted to Catholicism. He had been a person of faith. He read the Bible. He was Episcopalian, Anglican, as he should have been as prime minister of England. And he gave an interview in which he detailed his something of his conversion story, much like St. Augustine did centuries ago. And he said he could trace the beginning of his journey to when he was a little kid in a Catholic school. And his father had had a massive, massive heart attack. And his mother, not really knowing what to do, decided to send him to school hoping that it would give him some kind of stability, that it would give him some structure that day. And she, of course, informed the school. While he was at school, not knowing if his father would live or not, he, um, the priest pulled him out of class just to check in to see how he was doing. And he said he was worried about his dad of course. And he told the priest, he said, his dad was not a believer. And he worried about what would happen to him. And the priest told him, he said, it doesn't matter because God believes in him. And for a little kid, that brought him comfort at a very chaotic moment in his life. And he points to that encounter as the beginning of his conversion to Catholicism many, many, many years later. Remarkable, remarkable. God speaks to us constantly. God invites us into communion with himself And even if we have been walking the path for many years and we've been good believers, we strive to live good lives, we pray, we go to church, we're kind to people, we're generous to the poor. Even then, God calls us to something deeper, a more intimate communion with himself, a greater communion with each other, The fact of the matter is, in the spiritual life, we are never standing still. Never. If we're standing still, we're actually going backwards. We're either progressing in our life of faith, growing closer to God, 
or we're kind of drifting further away from God. But either way, God calls us. God calls us to change and to be different, to be better. And there are two things about this that I think strike me the most. First of all is God's desire for us. No matter who we are or what we've done. Tony Blair has done some bad things. Politician. <laughs> Dorothy Day, St. Augustine. God's desire to be a part of our lives. And the second thing that this says to me is the role that each of us, that others can play in helping us to hear God's voice, to hear God's call, whether it be Bishop Ambrose, right, the nun on the street in Brooklyn, this beggar, the reality of the poor, that priest from when Tony Blair was a little kid. There are almost always other people who are part of that journey, part of that movement closer to Almighty God. Extremely important. In the season of Lent, right, the church gives us a couple of tools. The church encourages us to pray, to fast, and to give alms. These tools, these practices that the wisdom of the church has discerned, has developed over centuries, are offered to us to further our progress as Christians to journey through Lent, but through our lives. And I think beginning with God's voice, beginning with our source, God the Alpha and the Omega, God the Alpha requires discernment. And that's where that prayer comes into play. Listening, reflecting, reading the scriptures, Augustine's impact or interaction with the scriptures and others, where the scriptures are God's word, listening to our lives, to the people around us, reflecting on what happens to us, being open. Our prayer encompasses all of these things and our daily practice of prayer kind of opens our ears so that we might hear more subtly God's voice at work in our lives. It's hard, as we all well know, to commit ourselves to eight minutes every day. Very, very difficult. We're so busy, right? There's so many things. As soon as we sit down, our minds filled with all kinds of thoughts, 
about what we should have done earlier in the day or what we need to do later on. We start thinking back on things in the past, sometimes hurts and, and people around us. We check our phones. I wonder how many times I check my phone every day. I had one of those little clickers that every time I looked at it, it would click. And I bet I would be ashamed by the end of the day how often I look at it. I mean, it, it, it kind of has taken over my life. Um, but to commit ourselves to that kind of prayer, reflection, every day is very, very hard. And that's why I think things like the rosary or the anima Christi prayer or one of the Psalms become very, very helpful for us to focus our minds, to clear our minds and to listen and to listen because God indeed does speak to us and God wants to be part of our lives more and more every day to draw us into intimacy with him. And strangely enough, that's the path to salvation. That's where we find life and the fullness of life is in relationship with God and each other. So our prayer becomes extremely important. Back to the confessions. One of the things that, fi uh, that fascinates me about this book, it's hard to read. I mean, it was written so long ago and Augustine gets very flowery in his, in his writing. And it's like, okay, get to the point, right? You know, okay, we've been here like for four pages now, come on. You know, but that, that's more us and our practicality. You know, just tell us like it is. But what, one of the things that fascinates me about this is that each of us could write our own confessions, a spiritual autobiography, a biography of our life of faith, our earliest memory of the faith. Maybe people when we were children whose lives of faith impacted us, whom we admired. Uh, my uncle John, who was a fisherman in a, uh, in a kind of a backwater holler in Tennessee. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, no education. But at night, every night, he would be on his knees in his room and I'd walk past and just kind of look in. He'd be on his knees praying. And for a little kid, that's a powerful, powerful example. If we were to write our own confessions, our own journey of faith, when we were little, when we strayed, when we felt far from God, when our path took an unexpected turn that led us off in some weird place, 
maybe for years, and something happens, or we come to a new awareness, and we kind of turn around and come back. Those of you who work with the RCIA get a glimpse into this wonderful story in the lives of people who are coming to the Catholic faith, who are converting to the Catholic faith. It's always a beautiful thing to see and to hear. Tomorrow, we'll look more closely at the church and our place within it. And the interplay between the church and ourselves in our life of faith, in our, the journey of our soul toward Almighty God.